If you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to Daniel chapter 8. We had a great time studying a little mini-sermon series on Thanksgiving, which was a great time to look at giving God thanks with each other and then giving God thanks for each other. It was an amazing time together, and we are going to dive right back into Daniel. We're going to spend three Lord's Days in Daniel chapter 8, and then we're going to look at Christmas And then we're going to get to the new year, uh, and then we're going to jump right back into Daniel chapter 9, and we'll finish the book of Daniel next semester. But for our time this morning, Daniel chapter 8, this section reminds me of one of the most humbling experiences. If you are a parent or if you've babysat a child, one of the most humbling experiences you will go through is when your child or this little kid that you're babysitting hides and you go looking for them and they jump out and they scare you and they legitimately do so, right? They say, boo, and you uh, you jump a little bit and you think, how could a tiny little child scare me? Especially me, right? I'm towering over them and yet they terrified me. This has happened on a number of occasions in my household and my kids just relish the fact that they can strike fear into their father's heart. One of the best experiences is when you flip it around on them and they're hiding, waiting for you, and then you scare them and uh, and they freak out. But you know what's not scary is when you see your child run behind the wall or run behind the door and kneel down and you know that they're there and you walk by them and you say, oh, hey, and they go, boo, did I scare you? You say, no, I, I saw you. I saw you. Sometimes when it comes to prophecy in the Bible, we can struggle with it a bit because it's looking at future events that we kind of wonder, why do I need to know this? Daniel chapter 8 is filled with prophecy that would help Israel realize there's something coming and it's hiding behind the wall. And as you walk by it, it's going to say, boo, but you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be scared. In fact, I'm going to tell you beforehand what's going to happen so that you can not only be unafraid, but you can know that I am your God and that I'm caring for you. I'm going to tell you what's around every corner. Maybe you won't fully understand it, but you will know that it's there and you will know that it's coming and that I, as your loving Heavenly Father, am going to protect you, keep you, hold you, and secure you. Prophecy is all about revealing realities that are yet to come. And when God is doing that, he's doing that through images and pictures. And a lot of times when we look at the images and pictures, we wonder, okay, why are you saying this this way? God, this is a little bit confusing. We don't understand what's going on. But in all honesty, we would do the exact same thing. If we're trying to help somebody understand that doesn't share the same understanding of reality as we do. Just think about it. If you were to talk to somebody who's lived as an Eskimo all of their lives, they know nothing about Southern California. They know nothing about sunshine. They know nothing about the the, uh, tropical weather, the enjoyment of the seasons. They know nothing about that. And you say, would you like some pineapple? And they say, what is pineapple? How are you going to describe pineapple to them? You're not going to use words with sentences that stack up some linear progression of here's what a pineapple is scientifically. You're going to give them pictures. You're going to say, well, you know whale blubber. Let's get a little slice of whale blubber. Let's look at that. It's basically like sweet, juicy whale blubber. I don't know how to describe it. 
that, that's the, you're going to use images and pictures and that's exactly what God does with us. This is what apocalyptic literature is. God is never hiding things in apocalyptic literature. He's revealing them and he's doing that in Daniel chapter 8 giving them a taste for what is yet to come with some details being worked out in very clear evidential ways and some that are left for later. But this morning, as we go through this section of scripture, I pray that you would understand the glory of prophecy and how it highlights the good character of our God. What I want to do this morning is I want to read the entirety of this chapter. It's not too lengthy. But I want to read the whole chapter so that you can see the entirety of the flow of this section of scripture. And then we're just going to go back and look at the first eight verses. It'll be very quick. But you will even be able to see and understand the point of these first eight verses with seeing the interpretation. This is similar to what we saw in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel's going to say, okay, I need help. What does this mean? An angel's going to give it an interpretation. And that's where we get our understanding of what this uh, prophecy means, what these images mean and what they represent. So let's read this together and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time this morning and then we'll dive into these first eight verses and see the beauty and the glory of prophecy. Daniel writes, Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one which appeared to me previously. And I looked in the vision and it happened that while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. And I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. No other beast could stand before it, nor was there anyone to deliver from its power. But it did as it pleased, and it magnified itself. And while I was considering, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Then it came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and ran at it in its strong wrath. And I saw it reach the side of the ram, and it was enraged at it. And it struck the ram, and it broke its two horns in pieces. And the ram had no strength to stand in opposition to it. So it threw it down to the ground and trampled on it, and there was none to deliver the ram from its power. Then the male goat magnified itself exceedingly, but as soon as it was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn. It grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up toward the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and the stars to fall to the earth. And it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will throw truth down to the ground and will do its will and succeed. And I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? Well, the transgression causes desolation so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be made righteous. 
Now it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. Behold, standing before me was one who had the appearance of a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of what has appeared. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was terrified and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. Then he said, behold, I am going to let you know what will happen at the final period of the indignation for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns is the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that stood in its place are four kingdoms which will take their stand from his nation, although not with his power. And in that later period of their reign, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will stand, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an astonishing degree and succeed and do his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his insight, he will cause deceit to succeed by his hand. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even stand against the prince of princes, but he will be broken without hands. And what had appeared about the evenings and mornings, which has been told is true. But as for you, conceal the vision, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I rose up again and did the king's work, but I was appalled at what had appeared, and there was none to make me understand it. Father, this is a chapter that is so full of profound glory that we would miss the beauty and the majesty of Christ if we were just to scratch the surface we would miss the depth of how awesome your character is being displayed in these verses if we simply try to find a chronological sequence of events or try to find some timetable of what's going on. Yes, prophecy helps with those things, but that's not the purpose. And so I pray that you would take us deep into the character of you, our magnificent God, as we study these verses. That we would be amazed at your kindness in your revelation to us. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. Without you doing that work, we will not see what we're supposed to see. So be gracious to us. Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. What I want to do this morning is just go through these first eight verses. Pretty easy to identify what's going on because we saw the interpretation that the angel gave to Daniel. So we can go through them rather quickly. But then at the end of our time, we're going to ask a question, so what? And kind of go backwards and look at why God has said these things. So let's divide these first eight verses into three main sections. We'll talk about the ram, the goat, and the glory. So the ram, let's look at the ram. Verse one through four, the ram in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, so that's 550 BC because Belshazzar became king in 553, 
This is also, ironically, the same year that Cyrus came to power in Persia, and he's going to go and defeat Belshazzar. So in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appears to Daniel. I think the reason why he says that appeared to me, Daniel, I think he's saying how blown away and dumbfounded he is that he is the recipient of this vision. He's undeserving of it, and yet God graciously is giving him this revelation. And he is looking in the vision in verse 2, and it happened that while he is looking, he's in the citadel of Susa. Susa is 220 miles east of Babylon. It's 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf in what is modern-day Iran. Daniel is physically in Babylon, but in a vision, he's being teleported, as it were, transported to Susa. The same thing happened to Ezekiel. You remember Ezekiel was physically in Babylon, but transported in spirit to Israel, where he had visions in Israel. This is Ezekiel 8 through 11 and Ezekiel 40 through 48. So Daniel is transported in this vision to Susa. He'd probably been in Susa on work trips before in government official business. Uh, Susa is where Nehemiah and Esther would have been in going into the throne room in Persia. Susa is uh, where the code of Hammurabi was found in 1901. It's the capital of Medo-Persia, of the Medo-Persian Empire. And that gives us a clue as to what this prophecy is about. So Daniel is transported to the capital of Medo-Persia. And lo and behold, this ram that Daniel sees is a representation of the Medo-Persian Empire. Verse 3, I lifted my eyes, I looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. The two horns of the two divisions, Media and Persia, and Persia was bigger, Persia's stronger, mightier, so that's the bigger horn. One historian actually says, writing in the fourth century, that the king of Persia carried a golden head of a ram when he would march ahead of his army. So even back then, people would have understood ram equals Persia. So this is, you know, think of like the, the Dodge Ram logo that's on the front. That's what they would carry into battle. And so here, this ram with the two horns represents Medo-Persian Empire, represents Cyrus, represents Darius, represents this empire. Verse 4, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. No one can stand before it. No one can deliver from its power. It just does whatever it pleases. It just goes into the world and takes over. And that's exactly what happened. In verse 4, there are nearly 200 years of history being summarized in this one verse. And one historian says, quote, at its height under Darius the Great, the Persian Empire stretched from Europe's Balkan Peninsula in parts of what is present-day Romania and Ukraine to the Indus River Valley in the northwest India and south to Egypt. Massive global scale. So we've got a goat, or we've got a ram. We've got a ram, and now we have a goat. Verse 5, while I was looking at this ram, while I'm considering, okay, what's this ram signifying? I wonder what it means. Behold, a male goat shows up. Talk about the goat all the time when it comes to sports. This isn't Tom Brady. This isn't Michael Jordan. This is Alexander the Great. This is a representation of the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great. This male goat is coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth, and it's doing so without even touching the ground. You can see it in your mind. As it starts to gain speed, it just leaps forward and just flies across the land. That shows us the speed. You remember in chapter 7, 
You saw Daniel seeing this vision of a leopard. So a leopard's a very fast creature, but then also this leopard has four wings on it. So it's a very, very fast leopard. That's the speed with which Alexander the Great would go through the world and conquer. From the West, he's coming from the West. That's from Europe. And that's exactly what Alexander the Great did. A little mini history lesson on Alexander the Great. He was born in the year 356 in Macedonia. He was the son of Philip II, who was the one who had united Greece and Macedonia together. From age 13 to age 16, Alexander the Great was taught by Aristotle. And he inspired him with all sorts of philosophical ideas, with medicine, with scientific investigation. And in the year 336, Philip, his father, was assassinated. And Alexander, with full support of everyone behind him, and including the army, that was the biggest uh, support behind him, succeeded as the leader. He's 20 years old and he becomes a leader after his father is assassinated. Go back, rewind five years. When he was 15 years old, his father made him commander of the cavalry in Greece. So all of the horses, all of the army in that section of the army, Alexander the Great uh, was in charge of. And so when Alexander the Great became emperor, people asked, well, are you going to stop being in charge of the cavalry? And he said, no, I'm going to keep on working with the soldiers, working with the horses. In fact, he would be the first to enter the battle. And that's why all of his soldiers loved him. They made him emperor. One of his main tactics was different from the way that war was being fought at that time, which was to do it with speed. He would take his cavalry and he would find wherever the enemy king was and he would go after him to kill him. He'd uh, just attack right away. Not this attrition in the front, but go uh, behind enemy lines and attack as fast as he could. That's exactly what verse six is describing. This ram that has two horns, the goat is going to come right up to it and run at it with his strong wrath. No slow moving, but just chase it down. Verse seven, I saw it reach the side of the ram and it was enraged at it and it struck the ram and broke its horn in pieces. And the ram had no strength to stand. It could not oppose it. So it threw it down, trampled on it, and there was none to deliver. That's exactly what happened in history. Alexander the Great's father, was planning to attack Persia at the time that he was assassinated. So about a year and a half after his father's death, in the year 334 BC, Alexander said, I'm going to attack Persia in his place, on his behalf, for him. And so he did, and he was able to break the dominance with the first battle against the Persian Empire when he defeated them at a battle called uh, Granicus, the Battle of Granicus in Asia Minor. And it's very interesting because at that battle, Alexander had less than 37,000 men. About 10,000 of them were cavalry. And uh, Darius, the people he was fighting against, the Persian army, had over 50,000 men. Alexander led his men through the river, attacking Darius's army, taking them by surprise with the cavalry. They didn't expect it. Alexander defeated them. And at the end of the battle, Alexander and his armies killed 5,000 Persians, which is about 10% of their army. But Alexander had only lost 400 men. His victories in subsequent battles at Isis in 330 BC and Arbola in 331 completed his conquests uh, throughout the whole world. And within three very short years, Alexander gained control of everything that he wanted to, past what his father was even looking at. And by the way, he's 26 years old when he becomes emperor over the whole known world. 
Encyclopedia Britannica says, quote, as a general, Alexander is among the greatest the world has ever known. He showed unusual versatility, both in the combination of different arms and in adapting his tactics to the challenge of enemies who commanded novel forms of warfare. His strategy was skillful and imaginative, and he knew how to exploit the chances that arise in every battle and may be decisive for victory or for defeat. He also drew the last advantage from victory by relentless pursuit. His use of cavalry was so effective that he rarely had to fall back upon his infantry to deliver the crushing blow. When it was all said and done, his empire consisted of over 1.5 million square miles. But, verse 8, once he gains control of everything and magnifies himself and is mighty, he is broken. He's broken. Ironically, in Nebuchadnezzar's palace in Babylon, Alexander the Great died. June 13th, 323 B.C., at the age of 33. He was survived by two sons, Alexander IV and Heracles. And shortly after Alexander the Great's death, they were murdered. And so there were four different divisions of Alexander the Great's empire that were divided up into four sections, divided up to four people. We're going to look at these in great detail in the next few weeks. But Antipater and later Cassander in Macedonia, that was one region. Lysimachus in Asia Minor. Seleucus in Syria, and Ptolemy in Egypt and Arabia. And those last two are important, Seleucus and Ptolemy. Uh, Right between them was the little strip of Israel. And Seleucus is the most important one because it's out of that territory that the man that's identified in verses 9 through 14 is going to come, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who is going to be this little horn that's going to rule in an antichrist-type way. So, we know who the ram is. It's Persia. It's Medo-Persian Empire. It's Cyrus. We know who the goat is. The goat is uh, Greece, um, Alexander the Great. Now the so what? Now the glory. What, What makes this prophecy so glorious? What makes it so profound? I want to give you six reasons why I believe these prophetic words are absolutely mind-boggling. And ultimately, these can apply to all forms of prophecy in the Bible. Six different ways in which we are to understand the glory that is inherent in prophecy. Number one, prophecy is one of the greatest apologetics for the veracity of our God, for the truthfulness of our God. Prophecy is one of the greatest apologetics that God is true and that his word is true. If I were to ask you, what distinguishes the one true God from any false God? Or another way to ask the question, how do we know that our God is true? How do we know that? Turn to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46 answers this question. Go to Isaiah 46, verse 5. God says through the pen of Isaiah, To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me 
that we would be alike. Those who lavish gold from the purse and waste silver on the scale, they hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They fall down. Indeed, they worship it. They carry it upon the shoulder. They bear it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It doesn't move from its place, though. One may cry to it. It cannot answer. It cannot save him from distress. This is idolatry. Idols don't do anything. They just stand there. They're cut from a piece of wood. They're um, worked out in the furnace, a metal, a piece of gold. But verse 8, remember this and be assured. Cause it to return to your heart, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, because I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. So these idols that you're making, they're not like me. I am God, there's no one like me. And what is God's apologetic about himself? I am the one true God, there's no one like me. And here's how I'll prove it. Verse 10. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my counsel will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. That's why the glory of prophecy is that God says before anything ever happens, this is what's going to happen. This is the way it's going to happen. These are the smallest details of how it's going to happen. God does that. Think about Daniel chapter 8. It was written in 550 BC. Daniel is describing events in that chapter that would not happen until 12 years later with the rise of Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire and the collapse of the Babylonian Empire. All of that would happen 12 years after the writing of chapter 8. He also describes in that chapter events that would happen 200 years later in the mid-300s BC with the rise of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. In addition to that, Daniel's going to go out even farther than that and describe events that will happen 375 years later in the 100s BC with the rise of the madman named Antiochus Epiphanes. So all within one chapter, he's saying 12 years, a couple hundred years, almost 400 years removed. That's why, by the way, and we've talked about this before, but uh, liberal scholars will say there's no way that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel because they do not want to say that God's real. They don't want to believe in supernatural things. They don't want to believe in prophetic utterances. They don't want to say that God himself could speak and tell people of foreknowledge of what's going to happen before it ever happens. And so they say this is so specific to the workings of the Medo-Persian Empire, to the workings of the Greek Empire, to the workings of Antiochus Epiphanes. This is so specific that there's no way Daniel wrote it beforehand. Somebody who claims to be Daniel wrote it after they happened and said, well, I can prophesy that the events are going to happen. That's not true. That's why even though the dating of books can be a very tedious and boring affair, it's super, super important because we can understand that there's no way the book of Daniel was written after these events. There's no way that it could have been written after these events. And we talked about that when we introduced this book a number of months ago. Prophecy is one of the greatest apologetics for the truthfulness of God. It's one he claims about himself. Do you have, when you go through the prophets, do you have favorite prophecies that are just crazy that they came true the way that they did? Let me give you just a couple. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. Jeremiah says that Babylon's going to rule in Jerusalem, over Jerusalem for 70 years, and then Babylon's going to fall. While Jeremiah is making that prophecy, Assyria and Babylon are fighting, and it looks like Assyria is going to win. So for somebody reading and hearing that, to hear that Babylon's going to win and then they're going to take uh, Israel captive, nobody would have believed that that was going to happen. 
And yet it happened. Daniel chapter 5, Babylon falls just as been predicted about 100 years earlier. They're going to fall. Uh, Assyria is going to fall to Babylon. Babylon's going to fall to Persia. And it's going to go on and on into the future. Nahum chapter 1, verse 10. A prophecy about Nineveh that says Nineveh is going to be defeated because of their drunkenness. It's a random one. But it was fulfilled when the king in Nineveh gave his army wine to drink the night before a battle and many of his army became intoxicated and ran away. And they were defeated the following day. In fact, Nahum is so specific, Nahum chapter 3, verse 15, uh, we are told Nineveh will be destroyed through fire. So through drunkenness and through fire. And we're told that once the army fled, because they were drunk, the army that was waiting outside the camp came in and just burned the city. We didn't even have to fight. We just burned it. What about Ezekiel 26, verse 12? Ezekiel 26, verse 12 says that Tyre's stones would be cast into the ocean. 250 years later, after that prophecy, Alexander the Great conquered the city of Tyre by tearing down the stones of the outlying buildings, throwing them into the sea so that he could make a land bridge to walk across and his army would walk across. You can actually go there today and walk across those stones. This prophetic reality proves the veracity of who God is, the truthfulness of our God. Secondly, a second reason why prophecy is so profound. Number two, prophecy reveals God's sovereignty over the smallest details in life. Prophecy reveals God's sovereignty over the smallest details. We've already talked about some pretty small details. Well, let's go smaller. Go back in Isaiah chapter 44. If you guys are still in Isaiah 46, go back a couple chapters. Isaiah 44. Verse 28, Isaiah 44, verse 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and all my good pleasure he will complete. And saying of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. You could drop down to chapter 45. He says, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Again, if you are Isaiah receiving that, you're asking the question, who is Cyrus? Isaiah wrote 720 years before Jesus and 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Cyrus is named in Isaiah 150 years before his birth. People would have been asking, what's a Cyrus? And God says, I'm going to tell you exactly who he is and what he's going to do before he's even born. In verse 2 of chapter 45, I will go before you. I will make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. We saw this in Daniel chapter 5, that crazy reality of when the Persians entered into Babylon, they found that those big bronze gates were already opened. How is that possible? They didn't even have to uh, blast through the doors. They, they were already open. Why? Because God says, that's the way it's going to be. I'm going to make it happen. And he made it happen that way. Go back to verse 6. Or go forward in chapter 45, verse 5. I am the Lord. There is no other. Beside me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, so that they may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So I'm telling you these things beforehand so that you would know I am God and there's no one else beside me. 
Prophecy is amazing because it's one of the greatest apologetics for the veracity of God. Number two, it reveals God's sovereignty over the smallest detail in life. Number three, prophecy enables God's people to live faithfully in this world. Prophecy enables us as God's people to live faithfully in this world. In Daniel chapter 8, God is telling his people beforehand that there will be tribulation, turmoil, and tumultuous times. And he's telling them so that they can be faithful in the midst of those times, so that they won't catch them by surprise. Dale Roth Davis writes in his commentary on Daniel, quote, history is anything but peaceful and calm. It is marked by times of conquest and upheaval and demise. Nations seem to be both furious and fragile. And this is where the people of God have to live. This history is their address. This sort of history calls for a sober and durable discipleship. Here is Daniel in Babylon, aware that the 70 years of Israel's exile are coming closer to a close. And yet there is this vision of Persian and Greek empires and a split off of that ladder and this crazy man named Antiochus Epiphanes. So it becomes clear that when the years of exile have seen Israel back in the glorious land, they will still have to plod along through a long stretch of this troubled stuff that we call history. That's what prophecy is helping us understand. History is filled with troubled stuff. And therefore, we must have, and I love the way he, he phrases it, we must have durable discipleship. This is discipleship that lives for the long term. This is discipleship that's playing the long game. We're not into quick fixes and short things. We're, we're looking for the long view. I hear this a lot in evangelicalism today. We're always looking for the return of Christ. We long for the return. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Yes, amen and amen. And the question's always asked, could Jesus come back in our lifetime? Absolutely he could, but also he might not. And there are people that in that kind of doomsday-ish approach to the way that the world looks, they think, well, Jesus has to come back now. And so I only have to hang on for a short while longer and then we'll be good. I think we should take a, a hint from Daniel chapter eight. God said, you'll be in Babylon for 70 years. That's your exile. You'll be sent back after that. And then you're going to have a couple more hundred years of difficulty trials, a couple really bad portions of your history. And then it's going to get worse. And then you're not going to have a land. And then it's going to get even worse. And then you'll come back, but then it'll get worse again. Like God's saying, hey, just hunker down. It's going to be a while. I think for us, we need to hear that. Jesus might come back today. That would be amazing. But if he doesn't, he's given us enough in his word to give us a durable sense of discipleship, a long view where we cling to the truth of God's word and we're not surprised by anything that happens. John Walton says it well. In the meantime, while the Israelites were waiting, they were called to live out their faith in a Gentile world under circumstances that would make it more and more difficult to do so. Doesn't that sound just like where we're at? The difficulties will become bigger and bigger, greater and greater. The challenge is harder and harder. They had to count on the sovereignty of God to sustain them, generation to generation, crisis to crisis. They also had to trust the power of God to control the flow of world empires as they rose and fell. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, they were being prepared for the long term. I love that. God's agenda is never in jeopardy. Nevertheless, we got to hunker down for the long term. Prophecy enables us to do that. It enables God's people to live faithfully in this world. Number four, prophecy reminds us that the world's most powerful rulers 
are fragile and fleeting. I'm using the language that Dale Ralph Davis gave us. Prophecy reminds us that the world's most powerful rulers are fragile and fleeting. Did you catch how it was described in Daniel 8? As soon as the goat became mighty, it was broken. Just as soon as it gained power, it was broken. That's exactly what happened. In chapter 8, verse 8, as soon as Alexander was mighty, the large horn was broken. It's a divine passive, was broken. God's the one who broke him. And that's exactly what happened. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 23, God is the one who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. The world's greatest superpowers and most enduring empires are fragile and fleeting. They're not safe places to be. We are living for a different kingdom, a kingdom made without hands. Daniel Aiken in his commentary on Daniel says, quote, tyrants of this age rut briefly on the stage. God raises them up and takes them out. If our God has this kind of power over the nations and its rulers, surely the same power is in control of our lives as well. That is good news when rams, goats, and little horns are running wild among the nations. God's in control of all of them. And he reduces them to nothing when he desires. There's an amazing account of this that just is so potent when it comes to thinking about the ways in which rulers rise and fall. In his book, The Devil's Disciples, Hitler's Inner Circle, Anthony Reed describes the aftermath of the Nuremberg trials in 1946. On October 16th, after 14 Nazi leaders were tried, found guilty, and executed, their bodies were delivered to a crematorium in Munich, where they were incinerated. That same night, a large container holding the ashes of all 14 men was driven through the rain into the Bavarian countryside. And after about an hour's drive out into Bavaria, the vehicle stopped in a place that is unknown to this day. And the ashes of those 14 Nazi leaders was poured into a muddy ditch. A few short years before, those 14 men were the most powerful men in the world, dominating anything that they wanted to, intimidating everyone that they wanted to. Their power was absolute and they seemed completely invincible. But that night, a gentle rain carried them all away. Prophecy reminds us of this reality. The world's most powerful rulers are fleeting and fragile. Number five, prophecy shows us the loving character of our God. Prophecy shows the loving character of our God. God knows the period that's about to happen for his people in Daniel chapter eight is gonna be very challenging. That's why Daniel gets so upset at the end of that chapter. It's going to be so difficult. And so God does not leave them in the dark. God says, I want to tell you beforehand, right? That's why he's giving them an understanding so that they can be prepared. It's not gonna take away the pain. It'll take away any sense of purposelessness. God's preparing them. God's preparing them in order to be able to endure and endure well. By the way, the implication of Daniel chapter eight is that it is important for God's people to know and prepare for the things that they're going to have to face, which is why the book of Revelation is in the Bible for us. We need to know what's coming and we need to prepare for it. God steadies his people 
to walk through every single season of history. These prophecies are really an encouragement from the Lord that we as his people will make it as we live according to his plan. Even when it doesn't seem like we're going to make it, God is promising, no, 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 you're going to make it. Just keep on holding on to my hand as I cling to yours. Finally, number six, prophecy points to Jesus's kingship over all things. Prophecy points to Jesus's kingship over all things. There is only one king. It's not Alexander. It's not Cyrus. It's Jesus. He is the only king. There's only one kingdom that endures, and it's the kingdom of our God. All of human history is heading uh, from the Old Testament to the cross, to the empty tomb, and now all of human history is heading from there, but it's all pointing to the gospel. And the church now, the church that Christ purchased, is now entering into the world and advancing that message that Jesus is king to a world around us that thinks that they are king or that their king is king. I wonder about you this morning. Do you know that Jesus is king? Maybe you intellectually know that he's king. I think we tend to struggle with the kingship of Jesus in one of two ways, typically. Either we see that he's king, but we think he's a very tolerant king. He lets me live any way I choose, any way I want. I can do whatever I want because he's a nice king. He's a, he's a kind king. And I can do anything I want. Doesn't really make a lot of rules. Some of the rules are just suggestions. I kind of get to be my own uh, king inside of the citizenship of his kingdom. He's a good king. He's a nice king. He's a happy king. And he can let me do what I want. If you feel that way, yes, Jesus is a good king, but you're highlighting only one aspect of him and that turns you into a spoiled citizen that doesn't understand the sovereignty of God over your life and the demands that God has made over your life. We cannot live any way we want to because Jesus is king. Maybe you're here this morning and you struggle with that reality. I, I thought Jesus is a, a tolerant king. He, he gives freedom and lets me do whatever I want. No, no, no. Jesus is king. He's a good king. And that's why he will not allow you to do whatever you want. He gives you rules for your good. Maybe you're here and you're on the other side. And you say, I know Jesus is king. And I'm afraid of him. And I think he's angry at me all the time. Because I'm constantly breaking his laws. And I struggle to live inside of his kingdom. And I just think he hates me. There's a nugget of truth inside of that, just like there's a nugget of truth inside of the goodness of this king. But if you take away the goodness and you just stare at the fact that you and I are rule breakers all the time, constantly, then we're just going to walk around like traumatized citizens thinking there's no way we can ever please this king. I wonder which camp you would fall into. The reality is we need to take both of them together. Don't go to one side or the other. Jesus is a good and gracious king, and he is a king who has wrath against anyone who would defy his kingship. And how do those go together? Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. That's how they go together. Because Jesus says in his kindness, I will go and live as a citizen in this kingdom in such a way where I will perfectly keep every law so that you don't have to be angry at Patrick when he breaks the law because I will keep the law in his place. But God cannot just turn a blind eye to sin. And so Jesus says, after I have finished perfectly keeping the law, 
I will then go to the cross and be punished because God is a God of wrath. I will be punished under the wrath of God in Patrick's place so that his punishment falls on me. So Jesus is king, a good and gracious king who has anger towards those who defy his kingship, but has made a way for all who defy his kingship to be brought as a citizen in good standing under his rule and authority. That's only possible through Jesus. That's only possible through the gospel. And if you do not know the gospel, if you do not know the kingship of Jesus in this way, in a saving way, I would just plead with you, don't leave until you talk with somebody about how to submit yourself to Christ as king and to love him and to treasure him more than anything in this world. Charles Ross Weed wrote a poem about Jesus and Alexander the Great. Both died at age 33. And he says this, Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life triumph seemed, the other a loss. One led armies forth, the other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the whole world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon, one on Calvary. One gained all for self and one gave himself. One conquered every throne, the other every grave. The one made himself God, the God made himself less. The one lived but to blast, the other but to bless. When died the Greek forever fell his throne of swords, but Jesus died to live forever, Lord of Lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves, the Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood, the other built on love. The one was born of earth, the other from above. One won all this earth to lose all earth in heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. He loses all to get and gains all things who gives. Father, I thank you for Daniel chapter eight, the reality of prophecy, the reality of your faithfulness on display in telling your people what they're going to go through so that we could be prepared. And ultimately, in a cosmic sense, you have told all of us what is coming. There is a day of judgment coming, the great white throne judgment. There is a day that is going to be set for us when we die. It is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. Here's a day coming and we are all mortal. We've been studying that in Ecclesiastes. We know that we will all die and we will all stand before that judgment seat. And you and your grace have made a way for us to be forgiven, to be able to stand in your presence unashamed with great joy, blameless before you, no longer our judge, now our heavenly father with Christ as our brother. This is amazing grace. And so therefore we are pointed to the kingship of our savior through these prophecies. And we joyfully and gladly submit you are king. 
We love your kingship. We love your rule in our lives. Help us to love you more, even as we sing of your character, your kindness, and your faithfulness. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.